0: Right, great, hello everybody. Uh, thank you very much for coming to London is World here at Conway Hall. Um, quick bit of housekeeping before we get underway. Um, if there is a fire, exit through those doors at the back and uh, we'll meet in Red Lion Square, just outside. Um, I'm sure there won't be, so just be relaxed, be easy. Um, before, before we start, um, those crazy sounds and wonderful noises you were hearing at the, at the start there um, were all thanks to the London Sound Survey, and um, Ian at the back there is just going to tell you a very little bit about um, some of the noises you've just heard. I know listening to them in the green room, a few ears were pricked up at some of those noise <laughs> sounds. Ian.
1: Yeah, hello there. Um, those are wildlife recordings made almost exclusively in London, and those which weren't were made along the Thames estuary Early on you heard uh, a nice selection of sounds from All Hallows Marsh on the Isle of Grain where you hear marsh frogs and various other birds Those recordings were made by myself, Ian Rawes, for my website the London Sound Survey which has a section of wildlife sounds and also by a recordist from Hackney called Richard Beard who record the sedge warbler that you heard the Ringneck neck parakeets that he was able to creep up very close to so as well as the familiar contact calls we can also hear the kind of more conversational tones of their social calls which they make when they're amongst uh, one another on the branches of a tree uh, and there are some other sounds there as well such as a, what happens when you stick a microphone inside a flying ant's nest in rainham Um, It wasn't a very pleasant experience as they all came swarming up my arm. Uh, And a few other sounds as well. I think my favourite from that selection there is Richard's recording of a sedge warbler, which I think is a particularly fine recording. And you also heard the rather alien and mechanical sounds of a pipistrelle bat by the River Ravens, born in Catford, which was recorded with a device called a heterodyne bat detector, Which makes audible to us the bat's ultrasound. And it was a great pleasure to present all those recordings there, especially Richard's. Thank you very much for listening.
0: Okay, Uh, thanks very much, Ian. Um, Right, let's get cracking. Uh, Well, by way of introduction, I'm James Drury, I'm the editor of Londonist. Um, I'm very excited uh, about today's London is. Discussion because we've got a fantastic panel. Um, I'd like to ask them to introduce themselves as we go uh, by telling us all a little bit about who they are and what is your favourite space in Wild London. David Lindo, please.
2: Um, hello, good evening, and thank you for coming. By the way, guys, um, my name is David Lindo. I am also known as the Urban Birder. I'm a broadcaster, writer. Um, what else do I do? Uh, writer, um, lead tours, and I also. Uh, give talks as well about urban birds. My whole thing is to try and engage people in urban areas, not just London, but around the world, with the fact that you can see anything anywhere, even in the middle of a concrete jungle. Um, and my favourite spot in London, without, in fact, my favourite spot in the world uh, is Wormwood Scrubs in West London. I've been watching birds there for the last 24 years. I know I don't look that old, but I've been watching birds there for that time, and uh, it's a fantastic place.
3: Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Kate Jones. I'm Professor of Ecology and Biodiversity at, at University College London and Zoological Society of London. They have a stall over there if you want to go and talk to them later. Uh, so I, I like bats um, <clears throat> a lot. <laughs> Um, I was also, um, I've just retired from being the chair of the Bat Conservation Trust, which is the UK's charity for looking after and conserving bats. So I've been uh, leading the way way in understanding how to monitor bats better. So we've been developing new monitoring technologies so we can use a a kind of tool, a Siri for biodiversity so that you can understand from the sounds bats make, what they're doing, who they are and what species it is. <clears throat> but we can also do that for, for lots of other sounds as well. So I'll be interested to talk to Ian later about his sound recordings to see whether we can do that with those as well. So, uh, my favourite place in London is Highgate Woods, which is right by where I live. Um, and I've uh, been going there for many, many years, and they have a nocturne roost. Uh, which uh, comes alive in September, and uh, you can stand underneath it and hear it with your ears. But also, if you have a bat detector, you can um, you can listen to those sounds as well. Ian, do we do we have some of those? <clears throat> do you want to play some? <laughs> so uh, Ian was talking about these heterodyne sounds that you heard, um, <clears throat> which are these are these clicks, but. Uh, heterodyne detectors do some very strange things to the calls. They're not really the calls; they d- they kind of mangle them so that they um, uh, they sound quite different from how bats really sound like. So that sounds quite strange, and it's it's the way that the sound is transformed by this heterodyne detector. But if you actually use what well, a more sophisticated one, uh, can you play my ones? <coughs> ha <Ha-ha>. ha! <laughs> I didn't mean that, Ian. <laughs> Um, so if you, if you use a detector which slows down the sound instead, um, they sound more like chirps. So if we can listen to some chirps. <laughs> so those, those kinds of sounds are actual back calls that have been slowed down 10 times. So if you can imagine them 10 times higher, to, uh, that they're out of your hearing. Could you play one of those social calls as well? So these are songs that they sing to each other. You don't know what you're saying. So it's, it's kind of like a bird a chirrup or a bat, uh, um, a frog chirrup or something like that. Sorry. <laughs> no,
0: <that's okay. laughs> um, Helen, hi.
4: Hello, um, my name's Helen Babs. I'm a writer, a journalist, and an author. My first book was about urban nature and um, urban growing, food growing and wildlife gardening. The book that I'm working on right now is about London's man-made waterways, so her canals and her canalised rivers, so the Regent's Canal, the Grand Union, the Lee Navigation. Um, I'm hoping this evening we might talk a little bit about London's blue blue spaces as well as her green spaces. Um, I'm obviously going to pick the Regent's Canal as my favourite wild place in London, it's brilliant for many reasons. Um, it's eight and a half miles long. It runs from east to west London. Um, so and it cuts across boroughs and across social boundaries. It's a very democratic space. It's open, free to access. It's brilliant for people watching, but it's really good for wildlife too. And it's um, a really valuable um, piece of standing water, um, a, 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 a seam that brings wildlife into the city and um yeah it's great <laughs> I'm,
0: Matthew
5: um, I'm the director of conservation Fell london wildlife trust which has been working for the last 34 years in london to try and conserve protect promote nature um and i've got my hands dirty, managing Sydenham Hill Woods in the past, but I do a lot of what's the kind of boring stuff, really, behind closed doors, policy advocacy, trying to convince the decision makers to write them, do the right thing for nature in London, and particularly about connecting nature to people's daily lives. Um, I'm fascinated about the relationship between nature and, and cities, and how we respond to nature, so, I like some of the species which upset us, um, be it foxes or parakeets. Um, But in terms of spaces, I have one special space which I can never sort of lose sight of, which is Chromehurst down in Croydon. I probably first visited it as a six-year-old in the 1960s. Gives you an idea of how old I am. Um, It is a magical place which has got a chalky bottom and an acidic top, got a bit of heathland, and you can find little plants like Town Hall Clock and woodmelk and uh, sanacle, ancient woodland species which have survived you know, many thousands of years into the city. But there's also one other story about Chromehurst, which is something which we need to be you know, well aware of in terms of our narrative of protecting nature in London. In 1899 that was going to be built on and local people reared up in alarm to try and protect it. There are other sites in London where that story occurred all the way through the end of the 19th century and parts of the 20th century. So it has a part of a protection of nature in its history. Uh, and it's open at all times. It's a triple SI and a fantastic place to go. So I can lead you on a tour around there next year.
0: Um, when we think of London, the usual things you think about is the skyline, steel, skyscrapers, um, concrete, roads. But how wild is London? Um, Matthew, you were talking earlier about London being actually being not just this desert of the, as it might appear on the surface. There's actually an awful lot of very important species here.
5: Yeah, London is one of the greenest... Big cities in the world. I mean, 47% of it is green in some and blue in, in some way. 19% of it is uh, identified as having wildlife importance. So, you know, everything from Richmond Park and the Tidal Thames to various little pocket parks, nature reserves, etc. 24% of London is gardens, although that is actually declining in its greenery. So it is a very, very green city. And then when we look at the You know, the mix of wild animals, wild plants and wild fungi. We have over 13,000 species recorded in the city over the last 50 years. And the majority of those actually live here. I mean, some come in, migrants coming in in the the spring and going back in the autumn or coming in the winter and going a little later in the spring. um, And a few fly uh, fly by. Uh, But London is the most biodiverse region in the UK. It's because of us. We have bought things in unintentionally, we have bought things in intentionally, we've planted London planes, we've planted roses in our gardens, and all those things have this fantastic dynamic relationship to, to, to London. So when I hear and read of London being this kind of glass and steel city that is vying for, you know, front front of the top of the league with Tokyo or Berlin, you know, it's it's the wrong story. It is the wrong story about what London is, and I would argue what London should be. A city which is much greener, much slower, and much wilder.
0: Um, you said there's some important, um, some important populations of wildlife here. Is, is there? Can you give us some examples of?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I said that you know there are some things which are kind of people see on a daily basis and assume that that's all we've got. A few years ago, I, well, 15 years ago, I worked for English Nature, which is the government agency. I was their urban advisor and. Colleagues there said, well, you won't have much work to do, Matthew, because it's all rats, pigeons, and foxes. <laughs> you know, i.e., there's nothing of interest here at all. But, of course, when you look a little bit deeper, and once you sort of start talking to, you know, it's a wonderful group of specialists and enthusiasts that London has as well. We have some real fascinating stories to tell. The stag beetle, which is one of my favourite species, uh, London is a national hotspot, and particularly South London, for those of us who live south of the river, top stuff. Water vole populations in in the UK have been dramatically declining over the last sort of 30 years for mixture of persecution, habitat clearance, and the impact of American mink. But in our urban areas, and London's included in that, they're holding on. Places like Rain and Marshes, up the Colne Valley in West London, and we've got a project to eventually reintroduce them back into the River Wandle if we can um, in the next sort of five years. They were last seen there in 1960. So water voles are very important. And then I've now, we've been talking earlier that I'm plugging the plants in this, this evening's talk. Um, we have greater yellow rattle, which is a fantastic yellow flower, which you find on kind of chalky grasslands. London has the most important population in the country. Um, and we also have species where we've got... London has given itself a name to them. We, can, we, can, we, are, we know about the London plane, but I think that's actually not very wild. We have London rocket, uh, which came over... A, in the 17th century and flowered after the Great Fire. Um, You can still see a few sprigs of that on London Wall outside Tower Gateway Station. We have um, London Pride, uh, which is a type of saxifrage which uh, also flowered after the, the Blitz in the 1940s. There's a beer, I believe, that's named after it. Um, and we have things like Fulham Oak which is an example of some of the kind of hybridization that was carried out in the 19th century when, when certain august gentlemen didn't think that we had an interesting enough flora that they started to try and make it prettier. So I, I could go on, there are things where London has very important populations, Black Red Star, rarer than the Golden Eagle in the UK but London is a hotspot because it likes the kind of urban mix of Rubble and derelict land that we've still got in London.
0: I was going to say, um, we, if we look up what, what's the experience of London, I, th- I think everybody thinks about pigeons. But what more can we see here?
2: London, for me, um, is an amazing place when it comes to birds. I mean, I first started my birding life. I was born, um, yeah, I was born a twitcher, I suppose. Even though I wasn't a twitcher, if you know what I'm saying. But anyway, I was born in uh, northwest London. And lived in Wembley, and I discovered birds there. But London itself—I mean, if you look at it in in this um, way—I think there's been about 350 species of birds recorded in London since 1900, which is pretty damn good when you consider that in Britain as a whole, there's just under 600. So we've had a hell of a lot of birds turn up in Britain, uh, sorry, in London. That you know, you know, that shows that we have such a wide avifauna, even. And by the way, excuse my uh, diction tonight. I'm absolutely totally jet lagged. So if I do fall asleep, someone throw something (laughs) at me. Anyway. um, (laughs) But basically, um, to answer your question, James, um, it's all about looking up. You know, there's such such an amazing array of things to be seen. I mean, I remember walking down Oxford Street. I can do it any day anyway, but walk down Oxford Street and you see cormorants flying over the street. You see lesser black-backed gulls. Which are in fact uh, globally threatened, would you believe, but here in London, you know we see them flying around, and I found out um, a couple of years ago that lesser blackback gull um, is now found in North America, but no one's found a nest yet, and it's incredible that they're nesting in London yet in in North America, no one in the whole of North America has found a nest. London is an amazing place um, for me for birds I mean and uh, we'll talk about it later as well, but in terms of where to look, but you can find wildlife anywhere in London, absolutely anywhere.
0: Um, let, let's move on to that then. Um, where, is, as Londoners, can we see animals in the wild, Kate? Where's your, where, what are your top tips? <laughs> um,
3: my top tips? I think you go to the Natural History Museum. <laughs> uh, just because I love that building. It's an amazing, inspiring place. It's an absolutely incredible building. It's one of my favourite buildings in the entire world. And They've got extinct animals on the left-hand side, uh, in, with um, the statues and the um, the gargles, and then um, extant, uh, extinct and extant animals on either side of the of the building. And so when you look in, you can see all these amazing engravings, and it's just it's breathtaking. And then when you go in and you see the incredible array of biodiversity, that's to me is really really inspiring. And and they have a. And a wildlife garden there, which is actually quite diverse, which uh, they're developing across the whole site. So I think that's a really good place. I know you didn't really want me to say that, <laughs> but, but to me, that's really inspiring, yeah, and, and I really like that. And I think when you think about London, um, it's probably one of the best places in the entire world to study biodiversity. So we've got the, some of the best universities in the world. Uh, some of the highest concentrations of people that study biodiversity on the entire planet. So there are like 500, maybe 1,000 scientists in the Natural History Museum studying the natural history of this planet. So I think it's an incredible place to, to be.
0: Helen, um, can you tell us some examples of where you like to go to see animals in the wild?
4: I think a nice um, one to mention after the Natural History Museum is in Hyde Park. You can see owls, which is... I. I find that very exciting. Minutes from Marble Arch. Um, I can't remember what species. I'm sure someone else can tell me. There's a
2: pair, at least one pair of uh, little owls. Little
4: owls, yes. Uh, but there's
2: also that famous pair of tawny elves as well.
4: Which is brilliant. Um, again, if I if I go back to the um, man-made waterways, um which is a really interesting example of urban nature because they're completely artificial and they, they weren't built for nature. Obviously, they were built as part of the Industrial Revolution and created the Industrial Revolution. But they've become... Um, they're they're um, classified as sites of importance for nature conservation and have become very rich in wildlife. My favourite um, bird is the cormorant. Um, it's wonderful to see them flying, but maybe the best sight for me is when they're hanging themselves out to dry on the banks, maybe in King's Cross. They look like big bats. Um, a writer called Jonathan Rosen, who um, is a bird watcher in New York, he describes them as looking like broken umbrellas poking out of a bin on a windy day, which is brilliant. Um, oh, where else? Um, the marshes, Hackney Marshes, Walthamstow Marshes are some of my favourite places there. they Um, really big and empty and you can lose yourself. Um, In the summer, the grass is up to your armpits and um, a real tangle of different vetches and sweet peas and really loud with insects. Um, What's the sort of species you can see there? (sighs) Not great on species. Um, okay. it's <laughs> yeah. Loads of loads of insects on the lee. You can see um, kingfishers. You can see herons. All kinds of waterfowl.
2: Place that uh, Helen and I went to. In fact, you came along to this place. Um, one of my favourite spots in London, after Wormwood Scrubs, is Tower Forty Two, yeah. which used to be the NatWest Tower, uh, six hundred feet above London, and. Do you remember coming on top of Tower 42 Incredible. because I set up a Tower 42 bird study group. Um, the management of the building um, to their eternal um, whatever uh, helped out and actually um, allowed me to set this up. And what we were doing is basically watching for migrating large birds of prey. And from there, you can see upwards of six peregrine territories. And London's amazing because we've got 24, at least 24... Um, or maybe a bit less, I don't know, but 24 pairs of uh, peregrine. And when you think that after the end of the Second World War, the British population was around about 60 pairs, Um, it just shows you how well these birds are doing. And I've seen (laughs) urban areas as a fantastic um, habitat because the buildings to them are brilliant cliffs. They've got a ready-made food source, but more importantly, they're not hunted because they're in an urban area.
0: So what what do they feed on then?
2: They feed on pigeons, but they also feed a whole range of uh, species. Um, I know they've done research in uh, Bristol, and I can see one or two people in here know far more about peregrines than I do. In fact, they should be sitting here. They love the do they? I love, they the love fact the parakeets. And that's one thing. I love the fact <laughs> they eat parakeets. I'm not a great fan of parakeets. And I remember when, on my patch, when they first showed up, I was thinking, who's going to eat these things? And I remember watching a sparrowhawk chasing a parakeet into a copse, and then at the other end the, par- the, the sparrowhawks has been chased by five parakeets. <laughs> but now the peregrines have got in on the act and they've actually learnt how to hunt them and I'm really happy about that and I've also known about sparrowhawks getting them as well. so. <laughs> no, I'm not that. I, I, I do like them, but I'm you know, just um, a bit of my pet hate really in a way. <laughs> no, they're good. To, to be honest, even though I may go on about how I don't like them... They are an excellent way of engaging people because at the Scrubs, again, we have up to 5,000 birds roosting every evening and some of the locals come out to watch them come and congregate and I tell you what, it is a spectacle and I, I've watched it a few times and I can actually see why people enjoy it and it is a gateway to get, to get people involved and in, you know, on that level, it's, they're fantastic.
0: Um, Kate do you have to Kate do you have to go to somewhere specific to see bats or are they quite um, are they quite common across London
3: They are really common across London and I think that's why I like them so much is that they're really cryptic so you wouldn't you don't normally spot them but once you kind of get your ear in or you get a detector, a cheap detector, to kind of tune to that echolocation, you realise that they're everywhere. And it's one of my favourite things where you take out a group of people. I, this one evening I took a group out to Wimbledon Park Lake and we, had, we stood them all in Wimbledon Park Lake. And the bats were just going crazy overhead because we were quite a crowd and attracting all these insects. Nobody, nobody noticed Nobody, nobody. And I turned the detector on and it went... <laughs> and everyone's like, "Wow, we!" And it's like opening another sense up, you know, so that you, you suddenly realise that we're so narrow in, the, in what we can actually see and hear. And these species are, are that use this other sense and they're all around you. So you can go into Regent's Park. Regent's Park is one of the best places to see bats in London. Hampstead ponds are amazing it's it's crazy there in the summer so just uh, it's, it's easy to walk into Hampstead ponds as well you just go and sit there by the like well with somebody else probably <laughs> with a detector and and it, the whole this whole new world is open up so that's I think that's so cool that they 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 use this other sense so and it's really accessible like you can get one of those uh, detectors from Argos seven pounds well, or there are other detectors available from other places, obviously, um, but you know for seven pounds or make one yourself, you know I think it's really it's really cool.
0: Brilliant. Um, Matthew, the London Wildlife Trust works uh, with a lot of a lot of areas across the city. I'm not going to ask you to choose your favorite, but can you give us some examples of where we could go to actually yeah, yeah, see, I mean, this, see w-
5: I mean, I think that the, the issue is for me is that as Kate and Helen already touched on it, that wildlife is actually very close to where we are anyway. And all it takes is a little bit of space, a little bit of time, and a little bit of patience. And you can actually see a huge amount. Yes, there are certain places where you'll see a greater diversity of wildlife. And for me, it's places like the woodlands in spring. um, So when the wooden enemies come up. um, So Selston Woods, I have to say, plug for that, because... There are absolutely millions of of wooden enemies coming out on that woodland in April. It's a sight that is stunning. Or Perryvale Wood, which is the second oldest nature reserve in in the UK, opened in 1902. Uh, Astonishing bluebells. um, Far better than some of the other woods (coughs) that are proclaimed as bluebell woods. So there's those, and there's also when the butterflies start emerging. Uh, whether they're in woodlands, such as your purple hair streaks or, or your speckled woods, or into sort of scrubby areas. And again, scrub has a very kind of negative connotation, but very, very important for things like warblers, white throats, and stuff, and then butterflies like commas, uh, white hair streaks, um, white, et cetera, white letter hair streaks. So there's places like Wimbledon Common. Um, in the winter, you might want to go to the reservoirs to see some of the overwintering birds that come in. So the reservoirs of the Lee Valley are internationally important for sort of in overwintering populations of shoveler and gadwall, uh, Potchard and stuff like that, bitterns coming in. Almost, you go to different places for different times of the year, and I think that's the thing that's important to me. So there's no kind of narrow window. Um, we're in a fantastic season of, of autumn, so we've got fungi coming up, the leaves on the trees are turning, so go to places like Highgate Woods or, or Bexley Woods, which has got a brilliant population of hornbeams. Now, One thing I want you all to take away is that London Plain is not London's tree, the London tree is hornbeam. It's the natural component of our woodland canopy and it kept us warm for, for centuries before we got coal cheaply. We've mostly reduced it out of existence because it's a, it's a bugger of a wood to work, um, but it's fantastic in some of our sites. So, so places like um, Epping Forest and Bexley Woods. So Hornbeam, again, a London speciality.
0: Great. Um, so, so we've looked at woods and... and uh and reservoirs and places like that but there's there's some slightly more unusual places that you can find animals also you, you certainly touched on um, the, the former natwest tower um which is not i don't think where people would normally think oh yes i'm going to go and see some uh, some of london's great um biodiversity in the center of the city if the square mile uh where else can we are there any other spots that we could find wildlife like that
3: I did hear um, it was at the bat conference, as you do in September. It's the the place to be, obviously. Um, and we had a, a guy from the Netherlands to come to talk about his city. And they've been wondering where pipistrelles hibernate because bats hibernate during the winter. Um, and they were and nobody ever can ever find hibernating pipistrelles. We just don't know where they go. And uh, it he's been using these heat trackers in uh, in buildings, and he found like 2000 my, hibernating pipistrelles in a high rise block of flats so in the in, in the city centre so like these areas are really important for these pipistrelles and i wonder I think we're just missing them. I bet you they're in some of these high rises. So where I were they? Where
0: were they hibernating? They in were the just flat?
3: underneath, you know, between the walls. <laughs> like they got into a gap and they were just hibernating on the outside of, you know, on the on the wall to the outside of the, of these high rises. Wow. So I wonder whether we've got bats in all of the <laughs> high rises. That's where all the pipistrelles have gone. So I think that you know that there's so many spots they could be using and, and using it in a different way than we think. So.
0: I think you touched earlier on as well about um, the, the, the scrubby air uh, kind of d- derelict areas was, was that what it was? which is a good place for spot words
2: yeah I mean I think anywheres a good place ranging from a shopping uh, car park shopping you know market car park because in winter they can sometimes attract flocks of starlings and gulls but if you're lucky you might get a wax wing um, or two um, when I was a kid, my whole f- well, I was told that you wouldn't see wildlife in a city, you have to go out in the countryside. And I had no one to take me. So I was, you know, stuck in the city. But then I realised that the city had a lot more to offer. And I lived in Wembley, and there was a park around the corner for me, Monks Park. But over the River Brent was an area of derelict land, which was actually a building site, unbeknown to me. But for me, that was my countryside. So I'd go there with my friend, we'd explore, you know, make camps, make a fire and all that sort of stuff, chuck aerosol, aerosol cans in fires so to see them explode, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. But we also discovered a lot of wildlife there. I was seeing things that I thought only lived in the countryside. I saw skylarks nesting um, in, in the grassy areas. I, on the River Brent itself, there were moorhens and kingfishes and I even had common sandpipers and migrant yellow wagtails and things like that. So I was really quite surprised But for me, I I don't see, when I look at a city like London, I don't see, I see everything as being a a habitat, even though it's not as rich as a habitat out in a rural area. So I'm walking down, even in this area, I'm seeing woods, I'm seeing cliffs, and I'm seeing a massive uh, environment above me, which is the sky. Um, Someone recently was doing some research in Canary Wharf, you know, the Canada house And beneath Canada House, there's a very tiny park, maybe about the size of this room. And on the edge of the park, there's literally two trees, you know, like two trees thick of trees. And in the middle of the park, a bit of grass where people sat down and had their sandwiches and smoked their cigarettes and a path. And in the autumn, and this was before they turned the light down on the actual crown of the building, but that light apparently was the brightest light in eastern England. So migrating birds would just show up there, and these guys are finding some amazing things in this tiny park. I mean, I'm talking about tiny. I mean, things that's hopping around the ground. And for me, in an urban area, anything can turn up anywhere at any time, and it's all about opening your mind to that. I always say to people, and I take people out birding um, for the first time, who maybe originally thought that, as Matthew said, it's all about foxes, pigeons, and, and well, we can't even say sparrows anymore because they're pretty rare now. Um, anything to turn up. So once you open your mind, you will see an amazing array of stuff. And the, the greatest thing about being in London for me is that a lot of the birds that you see are a lot more approachable than the ones of the same species but out in the rural areas because they become very used to people. And they use our habitats, like our gardens, when we feed them, and we can get really close. And they're a fantastic way of showing kids, you know, stuff. Opening it, just open your door and just have a look, and kids can see things really close that they wouldn't necessarily see elsewhere. I mean, I remember taking a bunch of young kids out um, to a park um, in July once, um, a few years ago, and July's not a great time for birds because most of them are molting and, you know, looking after families and stuff. And I was kind of worrying, thinking, how on, I going to entertain these kids? None of them had any interest at all. They were like, you know, normal kids that weren't interested. But anyway, um, we saw a magpie, and I kind of ignored it. And someone said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a magpie. Oh, look at the colours. It's blue. blue." And I thought, that's interesting. They'd never seen a magpie before. So then I started showing them a lot of stuff. And um, it got to the point when I was thinking i better diversify here because there's not much else to show them and I heard uh, a Roselle's bush cricket in the, um, in the grass. Now, Roselle's bush cricket, about an inch long, it's got a yellow mark on its side, and it makes a noise that sounds like uh, electrical pylons buzzing. So I, I went into the, uh, the grass, and I don't know how I managed to do it, but I caught one. And had i known now, by the way, I didn't realise they bite.
0: <laughs> so I would
2: never have done it if I'd have known. Anyway, I got the, this, this uh, grasshopper and I, I said, Kids, kids, check this out. And they all gathered around and said, This thing, this, this insect, is sponsored by Nike. <laughs> it's got a yellow mark on its side. <laughs> and it was great because they didn't realize that all that wildlife was actually in a park where they lived. You know, So for me, it's everywhere. It's not even, I mean, obviously, we can go to designated areas like canals and rivers and you know, woods and stuff, but it's also. In your back garden, it's, it's on your way to work, it's on your way to schools, everywhere. And also look up and you see things.
0: Um, London's also home to some quite unusual animals. Um, David's favourite bird species, the parakeet, uh, is a good example. <laughs> um, um, what, what else is there? I mean, there's, there's terrapins in Clissol Park. What, what, have you got any other examples of unusual? Well, we we've always, spots.
5: well, I suppose the last 150 years, we've always had an interesting fauna, flora and fungi because we've brought it in. Um, so Japanese knotweed was introduced in 1850, sold by the Royal Botanic Garden Q, and lo and behold, a few years later, gardeners were being a bit worried about what was happening to their Japanese knotweed. Um, but it's, you know, things are arriving all the time. Uh, my sister... Um, and she writes a blog on a park in Peckham that she's been watching for the last 10 years. And she photographs the insects in that park. Um, and she's now got, I think, 246 species of insects that she's seen in a just, it's an ordinary standard park. It's, as, as I said, it's not especially des- designated for wildlife. Kids play football there, mums take their toddlers there, and uh, people walk their dogs. Um, and she's found a new species, to Britain, uh, just a small leaf hopper, you know. She doesn't know what it was, but of course in this day of social media, just put something on Instagram and bing, you know, there's somebody who knows something about these things and will tell them it's new to Britain and they all flock down to this small park in Peckham and get very excited and she gets a piece in the South London press. Magic, everybody's happy. Um, and that, that, To me, that is the the joy of nature in London. So the Terrapins, which are, you know, Partly bought in after the mutant Ninja Turtle craze, and then they got too big in the vivaria, so they were tipped out into the canals, and then and then people start worrying about that. And see, what we don't like is immediately anything becomes quite successful, we then think it's a problem. There's this view that nature is in balance at all times, so it never changes. But of course, it's always waxing and waning. You know, impacts of predators and prey and the availability of food and the impacts of climate, all these things, that nature is changing. Anything does particularly well, we have, a, we have a problem with it, whether it's parakeets. In the 19th century, we had a problem with sparrows, but it suddenly become rare. We get all upset about it, you know, and I think that's quite interesting. But we're in a time when we're in a global society, <clears throat> when borders are being taken down, whether we, li- whether we like it or not, uh, and we as a society are able to travel through all parts of the world so much cheaper than we could in the 19th century, we bring stuff back. So in the last 10 years we've had oak processionary moth come into Britain, we've had the horse chestnut leaf miner from the Balkans, uh, ash dieback came in three years ago. You know, These are all things that are an impact because of the way we are a trading nation. Uh, the latest things that have come in are the killer shrimps and the devil shrimp. Uh, just on the western reaches of the, the Thames, just outside London. Um, we've got quagga mussel, zebra mussel, uh, which were released out of bilge tanks from tankers coming in from Southeast Asia and then having an impact on the, on the, on the beds of the rivers. So some of these things are a problem. Uh, And London is the gateway, in some ways, to some of these problematical species elsewhere in the UK. And therein lies a very interesting kind of dynamic within ecology. So there'll be some people who are absolute purists and don't like anything from outside this country. And there are others who are saying, hold on a minute, you know, we've been bringing animals and plants for millennia as when we first arrived into Britain. And London is the place where most of us have done that business and that's where things spread out from. So London will always be a hotspot for exotic uh, and interesting and curious wildlife and um, I think that's something we need to celebrate, bearing in mind that there are a few species and only a few
2: which are a real problem. Mm. Is that population of snakes still found in Regis Park? East uh
5: Cupulian snakes, yeah, which the Daily Mail were suggesting were child killers um, (laughs) a, a year ago. Um, these things, which do go about sort of a, a metre and a half long, but yes, I, I've got a presentation which shows that them that's suggesting that these would strangle toddlers. Um, again, that's another bugbear of mine that the media tends to sen- sensationalise wildlife as being either the, the
2: latest death threat to us as a society. Yeah, about the gulls? Yeah, some okay. last, this summer, some, I, I, I had yep. to go on the radio because someone was talking about barristers being attacked in, Lincoln, in Lincoln's Fields by gulls. And it was just ridiculous. I mean, at the end of the day, okay, gulls can, you know, they do um, dive bomb when you approach their nest, but it's only for a very short period of time. And also, it's not in a gulls' interest to attack you anyway, because if it hits you and it gets injured, it's game over. And that's the last thing they want to do. But of course, us as humans, oh my God, we're being attacked, you know, it's a killer. And I wish they, sh- they had the same amount of enthusiasm for dogs that kill children, for example, then I'd say fair enough.
0: Actually, I'm interested in how being in a city affects animal behavior uh, compared to how its counterparts might behave in, in the countryside, for example. Foxes is obviously the thing that comes to mind. Um, I. What do we know about this?
3: I can say some bats really like the city and some bats really, really don't. So some species are really attracted to the insects around lights and others shun lights and don't like open spaces. So um, in in London, you have a a kind of a mixture of species which really like uh, urban areas. So (laughs) they're kind of of urban urban-liking bats, sorry? What kind of
0: urban-liking <laughs> bats are there? So uh, there's lots
3: of pipistrales. Uh, pipistrales are really interesting because um, only a few years ago we just thought that there was just one species. Um, and we've been thinking that they were just one species for, I don't know, maybe 100 years. So about 10 years ago they actually did the genetics on them and they, they turn out to be two, at least two different species. So soprano pipistrales, which... Echolocate at a higher frequency than the common pipistrelle, which echolocates lower. So, they, they look ex- well, very, very similar. There's some kind of strange bones in their wing which are slightly different, but um, um, they echolocate in different frequencies. They they cut up the world in, and they see the world and they forage on different sizes of insects. But um, yeah, they so they're they're really common in London. So soprano pipistrelle's quite like a lot of water. So they're quite like they're quite. Uh, like lots of lakes and reservoirs. So. But noctules as well, Noctules and serratines are quite common here too. And all bentons uh, that fly really low over the water. So they're quite common in London as well.
0: Matthew, how? Um,
5: <laughs> a lot of things do quite well. But I think one of, I wanted to bring up deer actually um, because uh, across many parts of Europe and North America, deer are moving into the suburbs, um, partly because deer populations, certainly in Britain, are the highest they've ever been in historical times. um, For one main reason is that there are no top predators that take them out. Uh, And we as people that uh, hunt deer don't tend to take out the right ones. So we're kind of perpetuating a growth explosion of deer So we've got red, we've got fallow, we've got roe, we've got muntjac, we've got Chinese water and we've got seagull deer. So six pieces of deer, five of which are on London's borders, uh, three of which are coming into London. And they're coming, you know, quite far into, so muntjac now seeing almost in the inner suburbs, um, fallow deer, certainly in Havering and Redbridge, um, and roe deer particularly in the south. And what they're finding is that, of course, gardens uh, are great, habitat for them, there's a good availability of food, Um, if they can get across the roads they're going to be fairly safe from anything, Um, there's a lot of woodlands in London's Greenbelt which they do well in and of course what's happening is that there is no joined up kind of control, whether one believes in control or not, there's certainly no control going on so those numbers are yet to uh, go further shall we say. But we actually don't know what they're doing. We know they're coming into the cities because the reports are going up. Um, and we've got a survey at the moment, so uh, the London Wildlife Trust and the website, you can, if you see deer, do tell us, because we actually need to start putting a strategy into place because there's going to be some impacts. And the biggest issue in terms of people in their daily lives is that there are crashes, yeah. um, and some of those can be um, fatal. There was a, uh, two young women that were killed last year uh, hitting a deer in, in Hertfordshire. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm pro-deer, I think there's a reality of living in the city and, and that's one of the, the crucial things that we as an organisation are always having to balance. You know, We love nature, but we also have society living here. We choose to live in cities for very good reasons and we need to be sure that they, people have, can live their lives in a safe way. So deer, yes, deer are adapting to urban life um, in a way that's quite surprising. And uh, if we look to Germany and to other, other parts of Europe, we should be also be thinking to think of some other large mammals that may be coming in. Uh, you may be aware, of course, that uh, wild boar were unintentionally released by uh, farmers um, in Sussex and the Forest of Dean in the 1980s. Uh, well, they, they farmed them, but they didn't really build strong enough fences Um, So they got out, and uh, their populations are doing very well. So we've accidentally reintroduced wild boar. In Germany, in Berlin, they're in the suburbs. There's a fantastic photograph I've seen of a a, a sow feeding her piglets underneath the wheel arches of a Mercedes in a suburban part of uh, of Berlin. Um, So within 20 years, I wouldn't be surprised, we'll see wild boar on the outskirts of of London, and there'll be some interesting relationships there,
2: I think, we'll have to manage. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because obviously we, we know that, um, for example, in birds, um, as we discussed earlier, um, birds are singing, some species are singing louder now and they don't sort of understand or seem to understand their country counterparts. But it makes me think about what is the future because obviously in, in the world there's going to be a lot more mega cities evolving. And does that mean that the wildlife that lives within our cities will evolve with it? because, for example, blackbirds in London are much more productive than the ones that live out in the countryside, because um, you know, they've become much more compacted in their territories and they can live side by side more, And plus there's more food to be got, which isn't the same thing for blue tits, for example, because, um, because of the lack of insects. Blue tits are actually having a harder time in towns and cities than they are, certainly during the breeding season, in woodlands. But the reason why I raise this point is that um, there was some research done in San Diego. There's a bird, a small bird called a slate-coloured junco, and San Diego on the western side of uh, the US is the westernmost part of their range, and there's a population that live in a mountain sort of to the east of San Diego, and every winter, they'd fly down and winter around San Diego. And in the 80s, um, there's a university campus there, and in the 80s, one of the uh, university... Um, lecturers' daughters, a kid, uh, saw juncos in the summer and told her dad and her dad didn't believe her at first and then he actually saw them and they started studying them and they realised that over 20 years the population in the campus became a resident population and it began to become different to their um, nominate uh, species or subspecies in the mountains in that the mountain ones had very white outer tail feathers and dark head which were signs, this is the male, which is signs of aggression, whereas the ones in San Diego developed um, very dusky colored outer tail feathers, and the head was diffused, and they were less aggressive. And the song changed as well. The ones in San Diego sang louder, and in the mountains they bred once a year, whereas in the the actual um, campus area they bred four times a year because they had food, a ready-made food source in terms of students throwing crumbs out as well as um, whatever put out natural food they can find. And th- they actually took a small group of these birds from the campus and put them in an aviary with uh, another small group from the mountain. Same light, same food conditions, everything, and they're kept separate, which is interesting. Wow. So is that the future? Do you think that one day, 200 years hence, when London's a massive city... Will there be a separate population that evolves into something else?
3: I uh, do you think we need to think about our responsibility. If it is going to be a megacity, it's going to be using up all of the surrounding areas. And so can't we make London better, a better place for wildlife than it is? It, it seems that there's so many opportunities. So um, I was in Warwick recently and Coventry City Council have put wild meadows all along the edges of the roads and in the middle of the roadway as well and it absolutely looks beautiful and it's providing habitat for butterflies and bees etc and pollinators so I guess there's lots there's lots of reasons to do it not just for wildlife but also for people and making the city better for people um and people's responses to green space is very very positive and so maybe there is um opportunity here to make London a better city by looking after its wildlife. It's got multiple impacts.
0: Mm, I'm, I'm interested in what are the threats to London's wildlife and what can we do to, to, to help around those issues? Um, Ellen?
4: Oh, just picking up from where Kate left off, it's also it's about people as well as wildlife, and also about adapting to our changing climate. So, climate change is obviously the biggest threat. Um, and London is a very—it is very green, but it's also very grey, and it's very—it's uh, dominated by hard surfacing. We need London to be more spongy to absorb heat and um, increased um, rainfall. So, I think that's a really big thing. All of the huge development projects that are going on at the moment, they need to be um, soft as well as hard and they need to take responsibility for um, the kind of the future and creating an environment that is going to be able to cope with a different climate and that is um, nice for people, um, doesn't create wind tunnels and sun traps and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah.
0: Um, Matthew, I know you um, have just uh, released this report about is Wild, um, which outlines yeah, <laughs> uh, outlines some of the ideas that we, we, some of the threats we have and how we can approach them.
5: Yeah, there's a couple of things I wanted to say. One, one is that sp- this is a report on London's wildlife sites, uh, which was a system that was developed... In the 1980s, after we um, gave a challenge to the then leader of Greater London Council, a certain Ken Livingstone, and asked him to do something about protecting wildlife sites, so now 1,571 of these, but I'm pretty sure the most of us in our room, in this room, can't num- name more than about ten. They're increasingly invisible because the system that set them up is kind of old, 30 years old, and. Um, there are huge pressures on London's green spaces for whatever reason, whether it's for children to play, whether it's for people to have a barbecue, whether they walk their dog. You know, anything that has not got a kind of clear purpose, I suggest, is vulnerable. But we've also got, uh, we've, we've changed a lot in, in those 30 years. So, you know, David was talking about um, going into a, a derelict site in, in Wembley. One of the most fascinating sites I ever went to was a place called Gargoyle Wolf in Wandsworth um, that had been an oil distillery and a gin distillery, not at the same time, um, and had been demolished. And in the course of sort of five years, so there had been an explosion of wildflowers. And over 330 species we recorded. We, we broke in. It was it was squatted by a, a group called This Land Is Ours. We managed to get in as surveyors and surveyed this 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 place, which had been just... Left for nature to do her own thing. And the thing that we're not doing, I absolutely l- applaud more wildflower meadows. So whether it's on uh, road verges, roundabouts, housing estates, parks, there's tons of space. There's 24,000 hectares of roof space in London that could be greened. But we are not giving room for nature to do her own thing. We're trying to design it all. And maybe that's what part of our work is. We do have to design that city to make it more resilient for climate change, for better for people. But I'm worried that we are taking away the room for nature to do our own thing. And this is one of the things that I find, particularly working with a number of kind of uh, players, should we say, who are wanting to design and manage London, is that they want to have a kind of ready-made solution for it, that they buy something off the peg, and put it in place. We can't just walk away and let nature do her stuff because it's out of control. We need to control it. And I think that's the thing that I'm worried about. In the 1980s, you could walk across these wastelands. There was no such thing as CCTV. There were no uh, perfect palisade fences everywhere. You could go through a crack in the gate in a wall and go and see these wonderful bits of Unofficial countryside, as Richard maybe would quote it, as he described it in the, 19, in the 1970s. This unwanted land, but actually was a nature's expression of her own stuff in the city. And that's what I'm kind of worried about, really. But uh,
2: I could go on, sorry. <laughs> well, that's the problem it's people. You know, my, my patchworm and scrubs... Um, i'm really upset because you know i've i've been crying on uh, Ma- martin matthew 's shoulder for the last few years because it 's under threat from you know a shift a shape shifter called the mayor because you know his plans change every two seconds and there 's nothing concrete and then there's transport for London and all those other people and initially they wanted to i mean actually i 've got a couple of pictures that Lee can put up for of the scrubs. But they wanted to make this, this area um, into a metropolitan area, which means mowing it to within an inch, an inch of its life, making it into a bowling green, basically, with one path leading one way, another path leading another way. And, you know, we talked about the dangers. I mean, for, for me, one of the biggest dangers are people and developers, people that want to come and just beautify things, or, as, as you said, Matthew, think that they can just plonk Something there, and then that's that's the answer to that problem. Let's put a little, you know, some. Let's just let's mow it all down, build something, and then put something, and it will be, be fine in two days. It doesn't work that way.
3: I think we need a, a joined-up approach to nature in London. We need to think about corridors coming in, and, and there's a lot of you've you've done your organization's done a lot of work on that, and we need to make that you know need to make London more connected, and have a proper plan about what we. What, how are we going to develop and what, why, it's, why it's, you know, have proper arguments about why it's good?
5: Is, is there... It is getting stronger. Right. Uh, sorry, sorry, James. But one of the things I think which is Helen's touched on is, is also the fact that there is a growing body of evidence, still not enough, I think, for some professionals, uh, to sow the relationship between us and our mental and our physical well-being by having... That ability, that contact with the natural world, so whether it's hearing birds sing, being able to walk into open space, and your heart rate goes down, and your kind of levels of depression kind of do they go down or go they? Up? I don't know. You feel better. And um, you yeah, there was a whole lot of stuff done sort of 20 years ago, which was trying to get the fact that nobody should live more than 300 metres away from a high-quality natural green space. It's quite tough in London to do that, but there's no reason to have that as an aspiration. And the growing body of evidence that's undertaken, for example, by Dr William Bird and his green gyms, is building momentum. Uh, And there's a project called Sowing the Seeds, which has been undertaken by the Mayor's um, Sustainable Development Commission, which is about getting young people, particularly the underage of 16, better connected with the natural world, given their tendency to sort of stay a lot indoors in front of a screen and all that kind of stuff and trying to reconnect that disconnection that has occurred over a number of gener- generations um, and is ad- ad- very aptly described uh, in the last child in the woods this idea of nature deficit syndrome that we're not having that connectivity and that leads to a uh, a weakening in young people's cognitive behavior and and their, and their ability to Basically, get on in life because uh, they're not having that contact with the natural world that many of us had when we were growing up, because our parents allowed us to do so.
0: Helen, um, it's it's clear that there's um, a need for um, a very sort of top-level, governmental-level um, approach to this. But <clears throat> what can we do, us, us little people? <laughs> um, you know uh, is there something we can do with gardens um or uh what can we do what practical steps
4: um one just <coughs> opening your eyes to nature experience. you know appreciating that it's there and i think once you do open your eyes to it you experience a million tiny new things about london every time you walk through it in terms of gardening that's a brilliant thing you can do um Even if you don't really have a garden, a window box can make a huge difference to insects like bees and butterflies, and just growing bee-friendly plants, even just one lavender bush could make a bit of a difference. If everybody did that, it would make a huge difference. Um, I think the stats that London Wildlife Trust worked out was that if you put all the gardens in London together, they'd cover an area bigger than 200 Hyde Park, something like that, something massive. Um, It's a really valuable thing. So if you have a garden, take away all the paving and the decking, make it wild, soft. Um, And if you've got a windowsill, plant some lavender or calendula, uh, put out some seeds for the birds. There's lots of small things you can do, which also will give you an enormous amount of pleasure. Um, From my um, window at home, we um, can see a grey wagtail that visits every day. We don't feed it because it eats insects on the wing, but it arrives every day at the same time, and it announces itself with its call, um, and it has a funny little dance, wagging dance, and it's it's just hu- there's a huge amount of pleasure that one gets from seeing something and um, seeing something in the same place every day. So monitoring a patch, walking the same way every day, and just appreciating it.
0: Are um. you saying I can not stop gardening? <laughs>
4: <laughs> gardening is brilliant. It's a brilliant way. When
2: we go back to your gardens, I mean, you know, so many of us have uh, back gardens that are basically um, patios, as you say, and the front gardens are car parks. And we've ripped out the hedges that used to separate us from our neighbours and put in sterile fencing that, uh, is, that's sunk deep so hedgehogs can't, you know, get under the gardens. But it's also, I think, part of the reason why we haven't got any sparrows left. Because you know, we're building buildings that haven't got holes for these birds to nest in and it's become a very sterile environment. And as you say, if, if people can just leave an area of their garden rough to attract flora that attracts insects, that in turn attracts birds, then you know, we're doing something, you know.
3: There's also like community action as well. In your in your road, there may be bits which you could green, you know, could dig up the concrete, you know, you could try and figure out whether there's a, an appetite in your road to do something like that. And I think that's really valuable as well. Or the local shopping precinct. Who's, who's running that? Why did they make those decisions about paving it completely over and putting a couple of pots in? Why are they doing that? Because it's not great for us. It's not great for wildlife. Why don't we just dig it up and, and have a little community group which is monitoring it? It's
4: that great sounds great. Growing is that it often brings all kinds of very different people together. It's a very levelling kind of action um, in a garden or in a community allotment. Boundaries seem to disappear um, and it's a really good way of connecting with other people as well as with nature, which is, you know, has great. a lot of value. That's a great
2: point because at the end of the day, I think, you know, wildlife is about people. It's about getting people on side and then that's how we protect wildlife. Because you can't just ring-fence it and you can't just say, you know, we know more than you do. It's about getting people involved.
4: I think also that's the thing about experiencing wildlife every day and even in a city setting. If we don't experience it every day, won't we lose the compulsion to protect it on a wider sense? If you're trying to convince people that deforestation in the Amazon is bad, that we shouldn't drill for oil in the Arctic, if you're not having any connection with nature in your daily life, I think it's much harder to convince people about those yeah. bigger issues.
5: Dare I say it, um, fighting for nature is a political act. Uh, nature conservation might be based on science, but it's about a desire to create space for nature. And um, I suppose one of the things that, I have to be careful what I say here, but uh, I am not particularly convinced by uh, our political fathers, mothers, whoever you want to describe it, um, that actually really understand the natural environment. Um, last week saw the death of Michael Meacher, who was the Secretary of State for the Environment um, in the early two, uh, end of the 1990s. Um, he was quite good. Uh, Sir John Gummer, he was quite good. Um, but we haven't really got a feeling that any minister's really talking from the heart, their heart about their relationship with nature, about what it means to them, and that's part of the political debate. And I think it's incumbent on all of us um, to use our voting power when we've got that opportunity to ask candidates about what they're going to do for nature. Yes, we all have a responsibility where we can. It's easier for some of us than it is for others. I don't have a garden. I've got a very paltry balcony, but I'm, I've got no green fingers. I'm used to managing woodlands. Everything dies on my balcony. Um, but I've got a bird feeder, and that's great to watch. But, you know, and I try to influence my landlord to manage their open spaces where I can. But it's incumbent on us to get the politicians and decision-makers, you know, what is it that makes them click? And if nature is important, to, if we can convince them that it's important to us in terms of what London should be like for our children, for our children's children, that they'll actually have an open space in which to play, that they'll actually be able to hear birdsong in, 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 in the morning. Because that's my fear, is that that may not happen, not because of any decision deliberately against it, but that death by a thousand cuts of little tiny decisions which make it much harder to then go back. We've done some fantastic things for nature in the last 150 years in London. Thousands of people have done brilliant stuff, made some great advances, and some things are doing well, but there are other things which aren't. And if we go to that mega, megapolis that Dave is warning us about, then without fighting for nature every bit of the way, then I think you know, there's, there's some tough things to worry about. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's all doom and gloom. I
3: think there are some good news stories. Like, so Arup is working with Crown Estates, to develop the Wild West End, which is an awesome idea. So they're going to connect uh, Regent's Park to St James's Park through green roofs all along Regent's Park, uh, Regent Street. That that's amazing. It's it's an amazing opportunity, and Crown Estates can do that because they own the land. They can do whatever they want. But I think that a company like Crown Estates and Arup are interested in these questions. I think that is cause for optimism, and that we can try to convince them.
5: Solutions, and that's the, 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 the thing which I think is quite interesting because going back 20 years, um, sorry, I always still I'm going back 20 years, but there were the planning system, because unfortunately that is one of the critical things in London, the planning system sets people against each other. I want to develop this. If you don't like it, you're going to have to fight me. That's basically what the planning system does. You've got to convince me that I can't build it. However, one of the things that was the big change I, I can kind of see in hindsight was in the late 90s when it was all about a black red start site in Deptford, um, when we and others were fighting a proposal to build on a site where black red starts are breeding and uh, basically the local planning authority were were useless. Um, But we realised we couldn't carry on that kind of way because A, it was exhausting mentally, B, the legislation wasn't helping us. So we had to come up with solutions. And that led to, well, why don't we put the habitat on the roof? And then that led to well, the renaissance on living roofs, green roofs, rubble roofs, brown roofs, whatever you call it. That all came from that particular fight in Deptford in 99. And providing so, yeah, now we hear of Crown Estate, Barclay Homes, Lendlease, whatever, the big developers are chucking up green roofs on their, on their um, buildings because they know it's a good thing. Um, and that's partly about providing solutions and we've just got to keep doing that in a way mm. as well as giving space for nature to do her own thing.
0: Great. Um, we have got time for questions. Um, I think there's a mic at the back there. So, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have a question that you'd like to ask for about anything that you've heard so far or anything completely different, uh, stick your hand up uh, and we'll come to you. Uh, we'll go here first and then we'll come over there.
2: Hi there. Um, just a question. Really, um, Matthew talked about the ebb and flow of populations. And in sort of 50 years of bird watching in London, you know, bullfinches were everyday birds in the 60s. If I see one once a year now, etc., you know the story. But, but
1: you, you talked about in the sort of volume of invasive species, a few of them are problems. You know, somebody made a call about the ruddy duck that they haven't made about
2: the, um, uh, the parakeet. Who decides?
5: Good question. Um, and I, I don't have an easy answer to that um, because, in effect, society makes that decision, but it, it kind of delegates that to the agencies. The ruddy duck was a, is an interesting um, case... Um, for those of us who aren't aware, the reason why the cull took place was to, to try and stop its impact on white-headed duck in Spain. Uh, and the ruddy duck was introduced into this country um, as an ornamental, and I think the, the cull itself cost was about £700 per bird. Um, it was also the symbol of the West Midlands Bird Club to give you an idea of its cultural value. Um, and so, therefore, we're already beginning to get these thorny issues about what these what these animals, what these plants may mean to us. Another example, Himalayan balsam. Um, And yet to some communities it's known as the poor man's orchid. It's a very pretty flower. Um, There's a fantastic study undertaken by the University of uh, um, Sheffield Hallam University where um, they were looking at the people's relationships to Himalayan balsam. So you've got one hand, you've got land managers getting rid of it because it apparently um, swells up and Colonizes riverbanks. And yet there was another uh, uh, section of society that was gathering the seeds and spreading them around, not just over their local patch, but going over to Europe and spreading them around because they really liked them. And it's about because we don't have that understanding what these things mean to people. We have an ecologist's view, we have a land manager's point of view, we might have an architect or a land, landscape architect's view of those things. Those things can find their ways into the corridors of power that make those decisions. And bingo! without actually understanding what the impacts are on society as a whole. That's a very long-winded unanswered to your question. But I think the point is that there is better science now informing what's going on, in particularly some of the invasive um, plants. So I think there are issues with things like floating pennywort, crassilyhelms, New Zealand stonecrop, etc. There's also a greater understanding about the likely impacts of species that might be coming in in the next decade or so and taking preventative action now on the basis that it's the kind of precautionary effects. So rather than waiting to see what happens, that's what happened with the ring-net parakeet, you know, it was naturalised in 1969, so we have decades. There you go. So we've had, you know, same with Japanese knotweed. You know, it's only in the last 20 years that we've seen any doing anything, although it was introduced in 1850. You know, so there's a much better kind of uh, surveillance in that respect. And yet, oak processionary moth, we knew what was going to happen, and bang, we've got the other, you know, another problem we've got in London is land use. And the fact that we've got hundreds of thousands of different landowners and trying to control that And trying to coordinate landowners is very, very complicated. So I don't know what the answer to your question is. There's more better science than that. There's a London Invasive Species Initiative, with which we are a supporting member of, and it's trying to get a better understanding of what some of these species are doing. It's trying to get what people feel about these things. So there are cultural issues we need to be very sensitive to. uh, And also to try and focus effort on those things which are going to have the most adverse impact. Uh, so we know that, you know, for example, those plants, there are some things like the quagga mussel, for example, the, the, sh- the crayfish, which are having an impact not really in London but potentially in terms of crayfish plague on the white claw crayfish in other parts of Britain. And that's where our impact across the rest of the UK is something that we always need to be mindful
0: of. Mm. Great. There was a question at the back. There.
3: Hello. Um, what would you do to challenge the, the fact that at the moment sort of interest in, in nature and wildlife is seen and, and perhaps correctly as sort of rather an elite uh, pursuit? Like a lot of conservation movements are, well, they're very white, they're very middle class, they're sort of people with time and money to devote to perhaps non-essential sort of survival issues, as it were. Emma? I, I don't have an answer for that, but um, I think that the mounting evidence for uh, being in wild places and being in green space and blue space is growing. So um, you can make arguments like how much avoided costs to the NHS. So those kinds of arguments make sense to policymakers, which means that that they can start to opening up parks from, for multiple cultures and multiple uses. And so that they've got an investment, there's another investment, not just for wildlife, but for people's health, mental health and well-being. And maybe that's a route in to make nature more um, widely understood and uh, open to more people, understanding those cultural barriers and political barriers for people to get outside in their local green space. So it's no good having a green space next to uh, one of the poorer areas in London if the bar- there's massive barriers to going into those spaces. Uh, you know, are, are just too high for them to go into. So perhaps a route through that is making the arguments for people's health and well-being, and you know, maybe the, the kind of politics and the cultural change that we need will flow from there. Can I just answer
5: that? Mm. I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, the, but the, if you look deeper into the history of the uh, nature conservation organisations, their roots are actually quite complicated, and um, for t- particularly local nature history societies um, in the 19th century were very much working class groups that came together, for example, in Manchester and Leeds, and even in London. Um, But what happened was that professionalisation, this is something that I've witnessed over the last 30 years in some ways, the professionalisation of nature conservation has meant that you've had to get more and more uh, qualifications in order to get a job. Uh, And that in itself closes the gate to so many people, you know, and so therefore that narrows the diversity of the organisations that are doing stuff. I have to say that the urban nature conservation organisations that kind of kicked up in the 1970s, beginning in the Black Country, Wolverhampton, Dudley, Samwell, was a reaction against that. And the same with the Teesside, the Avon, and the London Wildlife Trust in the early 80s, which was about this kind of orthodoxy of nature, which was a rea- well, to, to, to challenge that, really. I think we've, we've come a long way, but we've still got a hell of a long way to go. And it's about representing, in some ways, a greater constituency of people's relationships to nature than what the ecologists think or what nature conservationists think. And it goes back to that point I was making about there are very different views within the professional sector. Uh, I always find myself on the wrong side of the tracks trying to argue for things which have a cultural value and a cultural worth, um, but, you know, there are... There are hierarchies within the sector and it's about all of us trying to challenge that all the time. Keep us on our toes, that's what I would say keep us on our toes
0: David you talked earlier about inspiring kids by term that you had a cricket that could uh, that had a night tick on on it what's been your experience of getting people who maybe haven't been that interested in wildlife before, I don't think it's very cool to get engaged with it a bit more
2: That's a question I get asked quite a lot actually and for me uh, it's all about I try and think about it in very simple terms. I, I, I try to talk in the language that, you know, I'm being spoken at with. If you know what I'm saying. So in other words, I think it's all about making it simple. Um, so I mean, with that example of the kids, it's just about getting them involved. In fact, that very same bunch of kids from the uh, the, the Nike cricket thing, we walked on a bit further, and I saw a log, and I remember thinking, I hope to God, there's a worm or something under this log. And I remember lifting the log up and there were newts, there were toads, there were all sorts of stuff and the kids pushed the adults out of the way. Out came their smartphones and they were standing there taking pictures and making films for 50 minutes, 5-0. And to me, that was natural history meeting modern technology. So I don't actually say to people, put away computers. I say, bring them, bring them. Let's get your, whatever you play with or use, let's use that. To, in, to enjoy nature and get involved in nature and get some sort of connection because that's how things are going anyway. I mean, even in, in, res, in worlds of research now, you know, things have been geotagged and what have you. It's a lot different to what it was 100 years ago. So I think we have to embrace technology. We have to try and make... Because for me, it's all about entertainment. I like to try and make people smile and have a laugh and try and relate to them so that they can sort of think, actually, I can see that in my garden too. And I think once you start doing that, then I equate it to showing them the door that says environment. And they could go through that door and take it further. Or they could not go through that door. But at least they know that door's there. And that's all we can do. So I think that
3: the growth of smartphones and, and new sensors is, is, is massively... Uh, rapidly evolving as you know in the last decade and you can get sensors now that you can put into gardens that would that listen do all those recordings that Ian was doing and you can translate those into what's been happening in your garden you can get camera traps put in your garden to see what's happening you can get apps which will tell you what plant it is if you give it a leaf but you can uh, send things onto websites for people to help you Analyze them. Uh, the ash dieback disease was, was found in this country on a, on a Friday, and by Monday morning, someone had an app they developed put it onto the iTunes uh, store to uh, monitor it. So anybody could do it. So I think there has been a democratization of, of nature, which I think will continue. And I hope that we won't use, you won't see these smartphones as a barrier to, to involvement, but as a kind of a window into it. Yeah.
0: Um, any other questions? Yep. Um, who's got the mic? Uh, there's a couple down the front here. We'll take <coughs> this side and then that side. This side and then come across.
6: Okay. So I'm currently in the process of applying for a PhD, and the one thing I'm wondering is, I'm from the design world, and one thing I find really hard is to find things that combine the design world with, for example, ecology. And I really don't understand why there isn't this intersection, like currently available so to speak and I think you mentioned earlier about the whole planning process about how these people just aren't talking and do you have any reason for like why this isn't
2: happening? I didn't understand your question but I love your drawings in your book by the way <laughs> <laughs>
6: um, but what, what I was saying so I said like if you,
5: if you understand. so the question was about why don't people talk to each other
6: yes why, why don't people talk to each other and then also why for example, from if you look at the various different wildlife organisations, if you try to look for like funding and the things they're interested in, it's often like this beetle in this specific area. There's very little looking sort of like five, ten years forward, saying like working where we could find future solutions for like a whole. Do you understand? It's like they're often very small-scale projects, and there's none of this bigger.
5: Yeah, I think yeah, I think I get the gist. Um, I think there were two things I just wanted to kind of exemplify. What I think one of the problems is. I know people say there's strength in diversity, but there are so many nature conservation organisations. So if you are a person who wants to know about nature, who do you call in London? I'd like you to call London Wildlife Trust. But you might think, that's a bat, I'm going to call the London Bat Group. Or if you're interested in dragonflies, you might call under the British Dragonfly Society. So you've got this multiplicity of organisations, each with their own particular area of interest, And then you've got what I call the kind of silos of the professions. So you've got ecologists, you've got land managers, you've got landscape architects, you've got arborists, you've got foresters, you've got hydrologists, you've got a a plethora of organisations with their own professional disciplines. And while we all talk about the fact that we should be more interdisciplinary and integrated, the fact is work doesn't help us do that. And... The democratisation through technologies is beginning to break that down, but I still think there are too many entrenched systems which make it difficult. When you get round a table, you can start recognising those solutions. If you're in a pub, you can start recognising those solutions. You know, almost the work environment is a barrier in itself, and I think one of the challenges for us is the way that work environments are are very different. I'm going to really show my age. When I started working at London Wildlife Trust, we had one computer and typewriters. You know, It's going very, very quickly now, and I think it's incumbent on, on us working for nature to, to understand where other disciplines are, where the designers are, where the architects are. We're doing some of that. I don't think we should beat ourselves over the back over it, but we need to be even smarter on it.
3: Then. <laughs> You're the pessimist in <laughs> the stable, but um, and I actually invited Matthew to UCL to discuss a joint project together. So um, there, is, there is, there is, there is, it's changing, and the funding um, environment is changing as well. So people want joined up projects. They want solutions, and you can't do a solution if you've just got a team of ecologists. You need to talk to the urban planners, the architects, the designers, the cultural historians. You need all of those people to, and the GLA and the, you know, whoever else it needs, you need all of those people to to make those projects work. So I think the funding environment is changing because people want those solutions. Great. Question here. Hi. Um, uh, David, this is probably a question for you. Sorry, going back to Parakeet's. (laughs) Um, But um, I wanted to know if you knew of any negative impacts that the introduction of parakeets have had to our native bird species in London.
2: Well, as far as I know, there hasn't been in terms of nesting. I mean, I know they've done some research in Belgium, I think it is, and they discovered that there might have been a conflict between other whole-nesting birds like Nuthatch. But I don't think, as far as I know, there is that in London, even though I've believed that myself a long time, but I can't prove that. But what I do think is that they they are bullies at the bird table. Um, they den, they do tend to sort of smaller birds do tend to sort of shy away once once they're around. Um, but that's I how it is. Stop
0: hating that
2: study was modelling well, it wasn't, the, the the issue is the
5: Belgian study was modelling. It wasn't actually observation. It was it was using kind of statistics. There's some work that's been looking at starlings as well, which so the starlings are actually probably quite better at defending themselves than the parakeets. I think the jury's out, but they clearly will strip a cherry tree, which is why farmers hate them. Mm. And the licensing allows you to control them if you have a cherry orchard.
0: I've probably got time for about one more question if anybody is busting to ask. Yes, there we go. Last...
4: There seems to be a lot of algae blooms in the canals, and I'm wondering if this is a problem, a worsening problem, or if it's just part of the cycle of canal life. Um, I think if you went to the Regents Canal this Halloween, you would have found a green one. It was almost like someone had done it on purpose. It's not algae; it's duckweed, um, and it's not—it's not—it's not a problem. In the I mean, Matthew might be able to help me a bit in terms of. Why it blooms at particular times of year it's not necessarily a problem the ducks do eat it and the water birds from my experience enjoy it a lot because it's full of bugs and they you know and they, they 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 seem happy enough in it I'm not sure in terms of the impact of its shadowing and it kind of blanketing the surface of the water of the impact that it has on fish um, but it's it's it happens a lot it it comes and it goes. It's not algae, so algae is a bad thing, whereas duckweed's not it's not the same thing. Um, I don't know if you know more about duckweed than me. Uh, well, duckweed
5: can blanket out, but it's not something that is particularly a long-term worry. But there are algal blooms as well, um, and mm. that's not helped because um, a lot of our water supply is... Um, you know, we live in a very dry city, despite all the... Um, threat of flooding and surface water issues. But we live in a very dry city. Uh, we abstract a huge amount of water, although that's mainly from groundwater. Um, but rivers are under pressure, um, and algal blooms are a response to the fact that oxygen and heat and um, leads to potential fish kills, usually following pollution events. So for example, there was a, another sewage impact in the river Cologne, um, sorry, the river Crane two weeks ago. It's the third in three years, which has impacts on the fish and then leads to algal blooms as well. I think it's part and parcel of our urban waterways, but there's a lot of work being done on urban river systems. We are um, committed as a society, as a nation, to meet the Water Framework Directive, which is a piece of EU legislation, which we mean to get all our waters across the country into good ecological status by 2027 or good ecological potential if they're canals. That's only because they've been highly modified. How we'll do that, given what some of our rivers are like, um, is an interesting question. But there is work in place to do that. So, yes, I think there's a greater understanding of water bodies now than there was perhaps um, 20 years ago. But again, I also want to sort of put, have an optimistic spin. <laughs> got, you, if we have been sitting in this hall in 1950... All our river systems in London were biologically dead. Mm. Richard Fitter, who wrote London's Natural History Mm. in 1945, said he'd never think that herons would ever return to London. You know how things have changed, and that's through legislation and people doing good things.
0: Mm. Which is a great note on which to wrap (laughs) it up. (coughs) Um, Fittingly, for uh, having talked about one of the most, or sorry, about the most, Um, biodiverse region in the UK. We haven't even talked about foxes, pigeons and rats, which is great. Um, It's been an absolutely fascinating um, hour and a half. Um, David and Helen have books on sale at the back, which I do encourage you to go and get a a copy of. Um, And please do go and visit the uh, Tidal Thames Conservation Programme uh, stand over there. They do some great work. Um, It's really uh, really fascinating what they uh, get up to. And absolutely, certainly, I must encourage you to Uh, join up for the London Wildlife Trust, find out more if you don't know about them, it's an incredible organisation. But thank you very much indeed everyone for your uh, kind attention, your fascinating questions and thank you very much to the panel for a really fascinating hour and a half, thank you.